my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky seventh topic at the end. This episode has deadly loops, bloody dinners, and musical death. Join me in song as we make our way through hordes of zombies and keep an eye out for future me. He can't be trusted. Number 1, Triangle 2009, directed by Christopher Smith. A woman named Jess, who has an autistic son, goes on a boat ride with some people. A random storm flips their boat and kills a girl no one really knew. The survivors, Jess, Greg, Victor, Sally, and Downey, get on a cruise liner that appears. People start dying. It's revealed that they are stuck in a loop. Jess is the main looper, who ends up killing people on purpose and by accident. Eventually, a new Jess corners the Jess we've been following, which makes our Jess jump overboard. She wakes up on land, goes back to her house, sees that it's the past where another her is being mean to her son, kills mean her, which is past her, throws the body in the trunk of her car, and starts driving somewhere with her son. Our Jess then gets in a car crash, which kills her son. She leaves the dead body of past her at the scene, gets in a taxi, and goes to meet the people at the boat in order to loop again. A Storm and Jess are the killers. When you have time loops in your movie, things start to get complicated. I have some major issues with the looping. For instance, why doesn't our Jess try to approach the group or herself? Why does she take the word of another Jess that the others need to be killed for the looping to stop? Does she just forget that she's already been looping once she kills the mean past her? I think the name of the cruise liner saves the day here. The name of the boat is Elis. In Triangle, they say Elis is a god of the wind and the father of Sisyphus. In Greek mythology, there was an Elis that gave Odysseus a bag with wind in it and helped Odysseus in his journey home. During the journey, Odysseus got tired and fell asleep, which allowed his crew to open the bag. The winds sent them back to where their journey started. Thing is, in the movie, they mistake that Elis for the father of Sisyphus. Sisyphus cheated death, so he was punished. He had to roll a giant boulder up the top of a hill. Every time he got close to the top, the boulder would roll back down the hill, so he had to roll the boulder up the hill for all eternity. You see, the ship should have been named the Sisyphus. I guess it being named Elis kind of works due to the Elis who gave Odysseus the windbag, but they directly reference the boulder story in Triangle. Sisyphus is the son of King Elis, who is different than the Elis from the Bag of Wind story. There are multiple Elises in Greek mythology, which makes all of this confusing. 
thinking about all this Greek mythology and looping makes my head hurt. To sum up the looping, it only works as a form of divine punishment for Jess. The others might also be there as punishment, but we don't know about them. The loop is not some anomaly that can be stopped. Jess always loops, and when she gets to the end of a loop, she either has her memory wiped or pretends to forget because she knows she must play the same part for all eternity. Once you see triangles looping as a form of divine punishment, things are easier. You don't have to worry about the logistics of some bodies randomly disappearing, others literally piling up, just forgetting the loops, just not trying basic things before deciding everyone must die, and just somehow being able to get her past corpse out of the bag in the trunk of her car after the crash without anyone seeing her do it. Okay, here we go. I'm going to talk about Triangle without complaining about the logistics of the looping for the rest of this section. We start off the movie with a terrible CGI seagull. It doesn't seem important for the plot, so I'm not sure why it's in the movie. There are some terrible stock sounds strewn throughout the movie. The most annoying of the stock sounds were the cricket noises added in. Crickets don't normally chirp that much during the day. I'd say everyone besides the actor who plays Greg does a decent job in this. Rachel McAdams, I mean Melissa George, is the best of the bunch. Liam Hemsworth, Thor's brother, plays Victor. He's not amazing, but compared to Michael Dorman, who plays Greg, Liam does fine. I didn't know the Hemsworths were from Australia until looking up Liam. The gore is pretty good. The gunshots don't look all that convincing, but I like the gore for the most part. Since R. Jess knew that Greg would tell the others she shot him, why didn't she shoot him in the head instead of the chest during the new loop? I said I wouldn't complain about the looping anymore, but there are so many holes. Like how does R. Jess lose a fight against a new Jess? Wouldn't she remember what she did when she had to beat a Jess? There are so many Jesses! Ugh! Things I liked. I thought it was awesome when Sally goes off to find a place to die and stumbles upon a bunch of past Sally corpses. Logistics aside, the scene is awesome and one that stuck with me. Another movie called Blood Punch that I covered way back in episode 2 had a very similar scene and I don't remember having as many issues with the logistics of Blood Punch's looping. Triangle has one of the funniest scenes of all time, which due to the looping, we get to see twice. It's just as funny the second time. The scene I'm referring to is when Jess is running from the baghead version of herself. The baghead version runs out of shotgun shells, so the baghead version tosses the shotgun at the other Jess while the other Jess is crawling over a railing. This makes other Jess fall over the railing. It's so stupid that Baghead just throws the gun, and the whole scene is comedic and fantastic. I wish Triangle leaned further into the comedy direction, because the gun throw made me laugh out loud twice. There's a girl that Sally brings on the boat to play matchmaker with Greg. Sally says she's not really attractive, but the best she could get. The girl is played by your normal, attractive actress, so it's pretty funny Sally acts like she's some uggo. The girl doesn't even make it onto the cruise liner. She dies during the storm. R.I.P. Ugo. Triangle is... Okay. I personally can't recommend it due to all the issues I have with the loop logistics. 
I don't think all the issues are resolved solely by watching the movie through the lens of Divine Punishment. If you really like movies with loops, check it out. Just be prepared for plot holes galore. Number 1, Triangle 2009, directed by Christopher Smith. A woman named Jess. Yeah, we're, we're not actually doing that. Number 2, The Body, 2018, directed by Paul Davis. A hitman kills a guy and has to take the body to a drop site on Halloween. The hitman gets to his car and finds the tires slashed. Some friends on their way to a Halloween party thinks the hitman is wearing a costume with a dead body prop. They all go to the party. The hitman demands a vehicle the party people promised to give him if he came along. He kills one of the friends. The remaining friends steal the body and run. A girl named Maggie, who the hitman was talking to, stays with him. After ridiculous events, the hitman catches up to the remaining friends with Maggie's help. He stabs Maggie, finds the friends, kills them, and dumps the body. Maggie, still alive, shoots and kills the hitman. The hitman is the killer. This is the first in a series of films being released monthly by Hulu. The series is called Into the Dark. It's being labeled as a horror anthology, but uh, all the movies being released are feature length. Since Hulu plans on releasing a bunch of these, they made sure to make the first one amazing, right? Wrong. Dead wrong. The Body is one of the dumbest movies I've ever seen. Almost every single thing the characters do is stupid. The hitman is terrible at his job. It's revealed that he killed a super famous person for a ridiculously large sum of money. We get to hear a conversation between the hitman and the man that hired him in the beginning of the film. The guy that hired him basically lets us know that the hitman is not always professional. Okay, so you are, uh, you're going to hire a hitman to do a huge job for a ton of money. Why did you hire this dude that you know sucks at his job? Seriously. Who cares if it's Halloween? You can't just wrap up a body with saran wrap and drag it around. No hitman worth the money would do this. The hitman also has the victim's blood on his face for most of the movie. Leaving the blood wasn't a stylistic choice by the hitman. You learn this after he sees himself in a mirror in a bar bathroom hours later and is surprised by the blood. He cleans it off in the restroom. The hitman is probably my least favorite character. He's Mr. Edgy McEdgerson. Throughout the movie, he spouts a bunch of edgelord philosophy. For some unknown reason, Maggie, an overly attractive girl who's also a video game programmer, instantly falls for this edgelord hitman. She basically throws herself at him. It's not realistic at all. No one is as thirsty as Maggie is portrayed. The whole movie I thought she would end up revealing some horrible secret about herself that would explain her thirst. Something like her only having one butt cheek, or worse, a kid. Nope, she's just a terribly written character. To be fair, all the characters are terribly written. The relationship between Maggie and the hitman is groan-inducing and awful. There's a part where the hitman says some lame stuff and Maggie responds sincerely with, That was the most amazing thing I've ever heard! Later on, he refers to them as we, and she says, You said we! 
It's Cheeseball and Bad. After the hitman kills someone in front of the friend group, one of the other characters named Jack, played by Ray Santiago, who's probably best known for playing Pablo on Ash vs. Evil Dead, has Maggie trigger a trap that locks Maggie and the hitman in the room. For some unknown reason, Jack and two other friends, Alan and Dorothy, then take the body with them. Why? Why would you take the body? Also, they say the person might still be alive. The body is dead. Homie's head is fully wrapped up. You can't go much longer than six minutes without oxygen before you die. The body's been wrapped for at least 30 minutes at this point. Even David Blaine could only hold his breath for 17 minutes and 4 seconds after inhaling pure oxygen. Wait a minute. Maybe the body is David Blaine, and he's been training to hold his breath even longer. After stealing the body for no reason, the trio decides not to call the cops for no reason. They go find a cop who's the dumbest idiot ever. The cop constantly takes his eyes off the guy he's been told is the killer, shoots Maggie randomly, and then gets his throat slashed by the hitman. Later on, the hitman shows that he's going to frame Jack for the friend and cop the hitman killed. Thing is, the hitman kills Jack by gouging in his eyes with his thumbs. No one is going to believe Jack gouged in his own eyes to kill himself due to the guilt of murdering his friend and a cop. The only decent character in this movie is Dorothy, so of course this movie gives her the lamest death ever. She attempts to shoot the hitman, he blocks the shot with the metal tray, the bullet then ricochets right back at Dorothy and kills her. Ugh. There is one decent kill where the hitman stabs Alan with an embalming nozzle and fills him with embalming fluid before planting a knife into the top of his head thus making him into a blood-embalming fluid fountain. The gore is practical and decent enough. The acting isn't great, but the characters are written so poorly that no one could make these characters believable. Skip out on the body. Hopefully the other Into the Dark movies will be enjoyable. The body is a short film with an unoriginal concept that was stretched to be a feature. It failed to entertain me in any way. Oh, and they bring up the dark web for no reason. Stupid. Sasha Gray is also in this and plays herself. She DJs the party. She was in another horror movie as an actual character a while back called Would You Rather, where a group of people play the titular game with deadly consequences in an attempt to win money. It's not a great movie, but I remember being entertained check out would you rather instead of the body number three flesh and blood 2018 directed by patrick lucier ever since her mom disappeared a year ago around thanksgiving time and was found dead kimberly has struggled with agoraphobia kim's father gives her a necklace for her birthday while her dad is out kim sees a news report about a missing girl who had the same necklace Kim snoops in her dad's room and finds a drug that's used to knock people out and a killer craft book. She then goes to the attic and finds a bunch of jewelry, which are obviously her dad's killer trophies. Due to her agoraphobia, Kim is unable to leave the house. She confronts her dad, runs to her room, 
calls the police. Her dad gets her. She tells the police everything's cool. Her dad locks her in a room. He leaves. She gets out of the room by going into the attic. Her therapist comes over. Kim slips her therapist a note asking for help, drugs her dad's tea. The therapist gets the note, and dad kills the therapist. Dad ties up Kim, then passes out. Kim is able to free herself by taking the box cutter her dad used to kill the therapist. Dad then comes to and pours gasoline on Kim, himself, and all over the house. He starts a fire. Kim cuts his face, runs away, and eventually escapes after her dad is engulfed in flames. Dad is the killer. Since the body ended up being a corpse in terms of entertainment, I was going to avoid the Hulu Into the Dark series if the other movie they released was Garbaggio. Luckily, the next Into the Dark movie, Flesh and Blood, is entertaining. It's pretty dumb and the acting is mediocre at best. Well, honestly, the acting is pretty terrible. Looking at you, Kimberly. What makes the movie is the bananas premise. A girl with agoraphobia, which for the people like me who don't already know, agoraphobia is the fear of places and situations that might cause panic, helplessness, or embarrassment. A girl with agoraphobia hasn't been able to leave the house after her mom was killed. She finds out her father is a killer that also killed her mom. That's bonkers. What a premise. It's nuts to watch everything unfold since the dad loves his daughter and won't physically hurt or murder her. There's even a point in the movie where he yells, I effing love you, how do I prove that? In Kim's face, which is just as absurd as it sounds. The way in which Kim figures out her dad is the killer is far-fetched to say the least. If I had gotten a necklace for my birthday, sat down to watch something on the tube, and saw a picture of a missing girl with the same necklace, my first thought would not be, my dad must have murdered that girl and gave me her blood necklace. I'd just think, huh, must be some cheap necklace you can get anywhere. Kim isn't some chump that believes in coincidence, though. Granted, after this inconsequential evidence, Kim does find some malicious-looking drugs and one of the most damning scrapbooks I have ever seen. If you were going to start murdering people and make a disturbing scrapbook, Maybe you should uh, hide it a little better. People snoop. It's in our nature. Putting your horrifying scrapbook and drugs in a top drawer probably isn't the best idea. The dad really should have found a better hiding spot for his creepy collectibles. Going into the attic all the time is definitely going to raise suspicion, and that's where he kept his trophies. Since Kim can't keep a straight face after figuring out her dad's murderous tendencies, she instantly reveals that she knows and her dad completely changes his demeanor. I guess that kinda makes sense. He can take off his regular everyday dad mask and show his true killer dad self. If I was the killer dad, I would have acted like I was innocent before going psycho, but hey. To circle back to the acting, the actor who plays Kim is awful. She barely shows any emotion throughout this whole ordeal. I feel like I'd be a little more affected after finding out one of my parents killed the other. It's weird that the cops don't do more when Kimberly is obviously in duress. But hey, cops suck, I know. When you watch as many horror movies as I do, you start to grow tired of seeing the same kills over and over and over. The current kill I can't stand to see anymore is a throat slash. This movie does have a throat slash in it, but luckily, it's actually done quite well. It's brutal. The dad slits, well, more like rips open 
the therapist's throat with a box cutter, which ends up being much more visceral than most movies in recent memory. You have this movie that hasn't shown any real on-screen gore up to this point, and then boom, you're shown one brutal throat slash. It's awesome and practical. The face slash that Kim gives her dad after this is not nearly as good, and neither is the fire death, but I really enjoyed the box cutter throat slash. For the face slash, they should have had Kim take out one of her dad's eyes. I wish we got more brutality there. Flesh and Blood has an oddball premise that makes for an enjoying watch. It's not amazing, but for a movie released on Hulu, it's rather impressive. You should think about giving it a watch. It doesn't really scream Thanksgiving, so don't worry about saving it for a holiday horror watch. Number 4, Coherence, 2013, directed by James Ward Burkett. A group of friends meet to have a dinner party the night that a comet will be passing over them. Weird stuff starts happening. It's revealed that the comet is allowing passage between a ton of parallel universes. One of the friends named M doesn't like her current universe, so she goes to find another one. Intruder M knocks the her in that universe out and puts knocked out her in the trunk of her car. That universe M escapes, so Intruder M bashes her with a toilet lid and puts the body in the tub. The next morning, the body isn't in the tub. Intruder M is with that universe version of her boyfriend Kevin when he gets a call from that universe M. Intruder M is the attempted killer. She wanted to kill and take the place of happy universe her, but failed. Let's start off by saying what anyone who has seen this movie's first thought is. Holy cow, is that Xander from Buffy? It is! Nicholas Brendan plays Michael, a guy that was a big actor in the 90s who was struggling with an alcohol problem. Huh. I guess that's perfect casting. Unfortunately, it looks like Brendan is still struggling with keeping his alcoholism in check. I hope he's doing well. Coherence is a fun time. Everyone feels so natural. It's almost like these are just old friends hanging out. Well, everyone but Lauren Mayer, who plays Lori, does an amazing job in this. Whenever Lori says anything, it's overdramatic and weird. After watching the movie, I found out that practically all of the dialogue was improvised. The actors were given note cards every day of filming with basic things they needed to hit on. Everything else was up to them. Coherence was filmed at the director, James Ward Burkett's, house over five nights. Since the acting was heavily improvised, the reason why the camera shots are a bit shaky is due to the fact that the director wanted to allow the actors to move freely. A lot of the movie feels like a home video. This style of filming led to some shots not always being in focus, but the blurriness never lasted long and somewhat aided to the feel of this being a group of friends being casually recorded. The actors weren't told that the power would go out or that people would bang on the house from the outside, which really helped capture genuine reactions. One of the characters ends up with a cut on his brow. If you've ever gotten a cut on your face, you know those cuts gush blood like crazy. His cut looked like someone put a little bit of fake blood on their finger and wiped it on his forehead. It's really the only instance of gore in the film, and the cut isn't at all believable. Back to Laurie, who's the worst actor in this. Before Laurie appears, everyone is talking about how insanely attractive she is. Every male character is like, Oh boy, super hot Lori is going to be here? Then she appears and she's just... average. Sure, she's attractive, but she's not some awe-inspiring goddess or a femme fatale. 
I feel like it would be easier to give her a pass when it comes to her acting if she was some gorgeous model that was brought on solely for her looks. But she's just a normal person. Some of the decisions that the characters make in this movie are dumb. If the power went out and I saw that only one house in the neighborhood had power, I would never say, hey, let's go over to that house. That's a weird thing to do. Even though I think the group decision to have some people go to the house is incredibly stupid, the movie perfectly explains why they would. A concept in the movie is that there are branching paths between infinite universes. If there are infinite universes, then of course there will be a universe which the characters decide to go to the other house. I for one love the idea that there are infinite universes, and Coherence does an amazing job telling a simple story that includes the concept of multiple universes. The cinematography comes off as a bit amateurish, but it works perfectly for the grounded home movie feel. It makes everything claustrophobic. During the climax, I was distracted by a questionable decision to flick the lights on and off when M bashes other M with the toilet lid. Is the one guy having an astrophysicist brother who gave him a book that's used as a big source of exposition the best writing in the world? No. But Coherence is an incredibly entertaining movie with a cast that feels like a real group of friends. I highly recommend checking out Coherence. Just ignore Lori. She's the pits. Number 5. Time Crimes, aka Los Conocrimenes, 2007, directed by Nacho Vigalando. A guy named Hector ends up going back in time after he sees a girl in a forest and is chased by a bandaged man. Hector goes back in time twice. Different versions of himself do different tasks in order to make the other versions do certain things. The first loop Hector is the bandaged man. The looping ends after the second loop Hector allows events that cause the girl from the forest to die and then chills on the lawn with his wife. Hector is the killer. His actions cause the death of a random girl. I know that summary is confusing, so basically Time Crimes shows you Hector's point of view three times which snugly ties everything together. You see past Hector do his thing, then first loop Hector, and lastly second loop Hector. I'll start this off simply by saying if you are a fan of time travel loop movies, you'll enjoy this. If you're someone that hates the same actions being shown over and over, even though more is revealed each time, you're not going to like this movie. Personally, I like Time Crimes. I didn't love it. Why didn't I love it? Hector is a selfish garbage man. This is a PSA to everyone. If you end up in a time loop, you have two options. Option 1. You can go hide somewhere where you can lay low until past you enters the time machine. After that, you can go on with your life and pretend nothing happened. That is probably the best option. Hector's dumbass instantly goes off to start screwing everything up. Option 2. You can try to stop yourself from entering the machine. Option 2 is a little harder since you can't allow past you to know about future you. And if you are successful, past you will live on and future you will disappear. Actually, if you did option 2 and past you never entered the time machine, you'd never go back to stop past you from entering the time machine, so past you would enter the time machine. What I meant to say is you have one option. Go somewhere isolated and hide until past you enters the time machine. If you think I'm wrong and there is another option that won't end up making everything more difficult, let me know. Hector leaves and makes everything more difficult. 
which causes a poor girl to have the worst day ever, which ends in her death. A poor innocent girl that was just trying to be a good Samaritan to first loop Hector, whose face was all bandaged up. I guess it's true that no good deed goes unpunished. That same girl then has a run-in with second loop Hector and somehow doesn't recognize his voice. It's really weird that she doesn't assume second loop Hector is the same person as the bandaged man that has been chasing her given his location, head wounds, and voice. Why she decides to trust that Hector, I have no idea. Basically, since Hector is a dumb, selfish, dookie brain, if you watch Time Crimes, you'll spend a lot of time watching an innocent girl get degraded, chased, and then murdered. First Loop Hector doesn't know he's going to murder the girl, but Second Loop Hector knows that she'll die, and his actions send her to her death. I hate Hector. For some reason, this terrible man who's not much of a looker has an attractive wife. Maybe he has a lot of money. It can't be his personality, seeing as he's dumber than a rock. Why would past Hector even get in the time machine? The operator coaxes him into it, but the reasoning is stupid. The operator tells Hector the bandage man will never find him in the machine. The machine is located in a small circular room. Am I supposed to believe that the bandage man who knows that Hector is in the circular room would not be able to deduce that Hector is hiding in the machine after a quick look around the room. I know the bandaged man is future Hector who knows he'd be in the machine for sure, but we're pretending bandaged man is some rando slasher guy. Hector is so dumb and unlikable. The gore in this movie is mostly great. The wounds are practical and continue to bleed. You get a good look at a stab wound caused by scissors and a busted open cut on Hector's head after a crash. First loop Hector stabs past Hector in the arm, Past Hector seems to forget he was stabbed in the arm and doesn't act like his arm hurts at all. Besides that, the acting is pretty decent all around. If you love time loop movies, check out Time Crimes. It's well put together and actually ties up the loops. It's worth a watch even though Hector is one of the most unlikable characters of all time. Number 6, Anna and the Apocalypse, 2017, directed by John McPhail. Anna, her best friend John, their friend Chris and another classmate, Steph, end up in the middle of a zombie apocalypse. They heard that the school is the place to go, so they make their way there. Along the way, they meet up with some douchebags, including Nick, a guy Anna hooked up with once. On their way to school, John, who sacrifices himself after being bitten, and Nick's bro friends end up zombie chow. At the school, it's revealed that the headmaster went crazy and let zombies in, which got people killed. Chris finds his girlfriend Lisa. They help Steph find her car keys, but the couple perishes in the process. Anna finds her dad, who the headmaster tied up. There's a scuffle that ends with her dad getting bitten, and the headmaster being eaten by a horde of the undead. Anna says goodbye to her dad. Anna, Nick, and Steph then end up driving off in a car as the only survivors. The headmaster and zombies are the killers. The last musical I watched was the Buffy the Vampire Slayer musical episode, which has fantastic songs. Before that, uh, maybe Sweeney Todd? Another musical where even though I haven't seen it in years, I can still remember at least one song that I really enjoyed. How does Anna and the Apocalypse fare? It's disappointing. Yeah, sorry to break it to all you beautiful listeners. I was very excited for Anna and the Apocalypse. The trailer alluded to a bunch of crazy kills and gore, so how was the gore? Not great. 
Most of the more unique kills are spoiled by the trailer. There is also a huge reliance on digital blood, which is a bummer. I feel like you can get away with digital blood sometimes, but when part of your joke is the crazy blood spurting, I need practical blood. If you are going to have a scene where a zombie's neck sprays blood everywhere while a character is screaming at the sight after the zombie gets his block knocked off, you better be using practical effects and have the blood spurt all over the screamer's face. Unfortunately, digital blood was used predominantly in that scene, and in the apocalypse starts off on a good note. The movie begins rolling downhill after the gang fights a group of zombies in the bowling alley. During the bowling alley battle, we get a bunch of varied zombie deaths that are a lot of fun. After this, almost all of the following zombie deaths stem from head trauma from a baseball bat and lawn candy cane. The heads don't explode or anything, they just get smacked, which is only entertaining the first three times, if I'm being generous. If I had to guesstimate, I'd say there are around 30 zombies killed in this boring, bludgeoning manner. I feel like most of the hits wouldn't even destroy the brains. If you are making a zombie, you have to have multiple unique and hilarious zombie deaths, which Anna and the Apocalypse is definitely lacking. I'd be able to look past the digital blood if there were more unique kills. What about the songs? I remember the chorus of... One song? I'm not counting the trailer song. The only chorus I can remember is the one that goes, There's no such thing as a Hollywood ending. I didn't love that song, but the chorus was the only memorable one. I even gave the soundtrack another listen to see if I just forgot about a great song, and I wasn't blown away by anything. During the movie, I kept thinking about the song Spike sings in the Buffy episode. If I'm thinking of a song in another musical during your musical, maybe you didn't work hard enough on your songs. There is a very funny rap about fish from two characters dressed as penguins, which I enjoyed. I didn't hate any of the songs. I just didn't find any of them to be great. Well, I did somewhat hate one song that is sung by the headmaster, but I think that's just because I hated his nasally voice and the character in general. I get that you were supposed to hate the headmaster, and part of the joke is his terrible singing, but I ended up only being annoyed by his inclusion. None of the comedy surrounding his character worked for me. I thought his comeuppance was also pretty lame. He gets knocked into a zombie horde after a star that's dangling on the school's theater stage is released and swings into him. We all know this is going to happen since the beginning of the movie shows the star being released accidentally, but before the big moment happens, I was sure he was going to get impaled on the star. He just gets knocked into some zombies. That's it. This character that way too much time is spent on to make you hate them just gets knocked into zombies. I'm sad to say I didn't love Anna in the Apocalypse. It's mediocre as a zombie movie and a musical. I don't recommend running to theaters to see it. I'm going to be going over a bunch of holiday horror movies in the next two episodes, so hopefully I can provide some better Christmas horror recommendations that all of you can find nestled safely under your trees. I just realized the director of Anna and the Apocalypse has fail in his name. Go figure. Another fun fact, this movie debuted at Fantastic Fest here in Austin in 2017. I should really go to that. Number 7, Ghost, a pale tour named Death. This is different. Isn't Ghost a band? Uh-huh. Is Ghost a horror theme band? I mean, I guess not really but they are a band that's all about worshipping Satan. 
Satan is kind of spooky, right? Some people are afraid of Satan, so I think a band that's whole shtick is about hailing Satan can technically be considered spooky, therefore discussing ghosts is fair game for Section 7. That sounded lawyery. Anyway, I recently saw ghosts for the second time. The first time I saw them was during Papa 2 era. For those of you that are unfamiliar with ghosts, they are a metal band, hit the brakes metal purist, that has had a different lead singer for each album. The lead singers have so far been three different popes, and the most recent singer is a cardinal, Cardinal Copia to be exact. All of these singers are definitely not the same person, pretending to be different people. That would be silly. When I first saw Ghost, Papa 2 was who I saw, and he is my favorite of all the singers. He was a very old Italian man. R.I.P. Papa 2. I just saw Ghost for the second time at the Bass Concert Hall here in Austin. I'm pretty sure it's Bass, but I don't think anyone knows for sure. When I heard Ghost was playing there, I was excited. I know a lot of people like standing in the pit at a concert, but do you know what I love? Sitting with a good view. I totally forgot to be ready when tickets went on sale, so I ended up getting balcony seats, which I actually really enjoyed. So how was the concert? What happened? Well, as Cardinal Copia puts it, I had my ass wobbled and my taint tickled by the music. The show was incredible. The first time I saw them, they pretty much came out with a basic backdrop and played the show. For this tour, a pale tour named Death, the stage had a magnificent staircase, which had plenty of room for the ghouls, the unnamed members of the band, and Copia to dance around. Copia even changed costumes multiple times. My favorite look of the night was when he wore a cape. When I first saw Ghost, they only had two albums, and they played almost everything. Now they have four albums out, and they played almost everything. It was incredible. The only song they didn't play that I wanted to hear was Elizabeth from the first album, Opus Eponymous. All of my other favorite songs across all four albums and even some from EPs and singles were played. The concert was so jam-packed that there was an intermission. I must say that the show Ghost put on is one of the best concerts I have ever been to. The only other concert I can think of that easily beats this show is the time I saw Ramstein, but those guys go crazy with pyrotechnics and over-the-top theatrics. The Ghost show also reminded me of a King Diamond show I got to see a while back. There's a fan theory that King Diamond is one of the ancient papas. I would love to see a King Diamond and Ghost team-up album. Welp, I'm not Mr. Music Smart Guy, but I hope y'all enjoyed hearing a little bit about something different. That'll be the end of episode 33. The next two episodes are going to be filled to the brim with blood and holiday cheer. Hopefully I'll find something special you can watch with Nana on Christmas. If you enjoyed this episode of Blank is the Killer, why not give it a rating on iTunes, force your friends to listen to it, or try to order it at a fast food drive-in window. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their site, allowing it to enter your minds through all your favorite podcast apps. Go check out other shows on the network like Director Showdown, where they are currently debating whether Cronenberg or Carpenter is better, or Late Night Swipes, a show about online dating. I'll be back with some seasonal horror for all of you on December 16th. Until then, remember, if you go back in time, stay put until past you gets in the time machine. Don't go messing around like a dingus looking at you, Hector.